All right, so Father, we just lift up tonight as we get into the Word. We just thank you for the Word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this time. We bless you. And Lord, as we thank you for your presence. And what a, what a wonderful presence of God is always here. But Lord, thank you so much for your glory that's here. Lord, thank you for uh, this place that we can come and people that come that are hungry. And, and Lord, we just love you. We love worshiping you and we love the presence of the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we need the Word. And Lord, we thank you so much for your Word that is an anchor to us and and such a source of life and truth, and we love your word. And Lord, tonight as we get into the word, I thank you for speaking through me everything that needs to be said, and that even now the Holy Spirit is moving upon everybody that's going to be watching or listening to this, whether live or through a recording, and that the Holy Spirit moves upon hearts and minds and lives to prepare people to be good soil for what you're wanting to do. And Lord, as you speak through me, your living seeds of truth, that it's sown into good soil that'll take root in people's lives and families and, and, and uh, begin to grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And let the winds of your spirit, Lord, carry this out among the nations. It'll get where it needs to and accomplish what it needs to. Lord, we submit this unto you now. And the Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the seed, so we agree together as a church and we bind the enemy in the name of Jesus that would try to hinder this in any way from getting where it's supposed to and accomplish what it's supposed to do, we bind you in Jesus' name. You will release and back off. And Lord, I thank you for your angels just clearing the atmosphere. And, and Lord, we just believe the Bible says your word will not return void, but go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We stand on that promise, and we thank you for everything being accomplished in and through this time that you will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so thank you guys for agreeing and River of Life is just a wonderful church. We just love you guys. My wife and I love being here. And so I'm going to talk today about paying the price for revival. That's where we're going. We know that God has a, a move of God for us and a harvest. And we're heading that direction. And so there's different things I want to, I felt the Lord want to accomplish through this series. Um, obviously, there's a lot of teaching, but as well, I really felt to honor the fathers and mothers that have gone on before us of the faith that have blazed a trail for us, and especially in revival, and those like tonight, I'm going to deal with William Seymour and the Azusa Street Revival, but we would not have what we have today if it wasn't for those that's gone on before us that suffered a lot of persecution in their day and paid a dear price, in which I'll talk more about that as we go. But tonight, I'm, gonna, I'm going to talk about a couple of different things and then bring it all together. So you're going to have to kind of follow me. And I deliberately did not bring notes tonight like I normally do because I just wanted people to give your best ear to what I'm saying tonight. So anyway, in part two, in desperation, this is the first thing I wanted to talk about. How many knows that we've, there's got to be a desperate hunger for more? And not everybody feels that way, just letting you know. I know you guys do, but not everybody feels that way. And when you're desperately hungry for more of God and you're desperately hungry for a move of God, number one is you're going to have to be willing to not fit into church as usual. And so there is a price to be paid for revival, and I'm kind of giving you something up front here that and this will make sense as we go tonight, but there's a group of people out there, there's a remnant, there's a bride, there, there's those that are out there across the landscape of the body of Christ that are hungry for Book of Acts Christianity today. 
And some of them are in very dry places right now, unfortunately, but deep down they're hungry for more. And if you're really desperately hungry for more of the Lord, then you're not going to want to fit into church as usual. There's different groups out there, and I'm not being critical of anybody, I'm just mentioning some things, but are very anti-Holy Spirit, anti-tongues, all of that, anti-healing. Just don't believe in it, preach against it, persecute, speak against it. You're not going to fit into that group right there. There's others that may be a part of kind of a mainline denomination, and and I'm not saying anything negative, but, you know, they're just, they're not revival people. You understand? They're kind of in a rut. They're comfortable where they are. They come and do the same thing every week. And you're not going to feel comfortable with that. You know why? Because there's something deep down in you that's crying out for more than just going through the same thing every week. And there's others, especially nowadays, that have have come in that emerge kind of more of a seeker-friendly thing, and I'm not against being seeker-friendly per se, but I'm going to talk about some things tonight. But listen, there's something in a group of us out there, especially those that have been touched in revival in times past, that there's a desperate cry, that there's got to be more. And we've seen it, we've tasted it. My wife and I have seen a lot of amazing things, but we're hungry for so much more. So number one, you're not going to fit into church as usual, but you also cannot be shaken by rejection, okay? And again, this will make sense as we go. The desperate cry that's in people out there for more will result in prayer and fasting because there's a hunger in them to go deeper in God and to see the move of God. And people that are really desperately hungry will also be so desperate that they're willing to let God do whatever needs to be done in them or their respective church to see a move of God. It's one thing to say you're hungry, but it's another thing when you're desperately hungry enough that you say, Lord, and you mean it, you're saying, whatever you got to do in me, whatever you got to take out, whatever you got to change, whatever you got to put in me, whatever you got to do, just do it and you mean it. And those, those prayers right there are serious prayers, but in a good way, they're kind of dangerous prayers because God's going to honor that and he's going to begin to stretch you. And he's going to begin to honor that prayer and knock the rough edges off. And he's going to begin to deal with things that need to be dealt with, things you didn't even know were there. It'll come up and God will deal with it. But there there comes a point of being so desperate that you're like, God, whatever you got to do, just do it in me. Do it in the people around me. Do it in our church. So number one, the desperate cry. Then number two, I'm going to talk a little bit about all this will come together at the end, but how Satan offers counterfeits. And it's a distraction. A counterfeit is always going to be something that Satan wants people to accept that to where they're distracted. They're not really going after God. They're comfortable with that counterfeit. Let me give you a few examples. If we're not careful, we've got probably some of the best praise and worship that has been over the last 2,000 years of the church age. But if you're not careful in the day and age that we live, there's also a lot of um, entertainment that's mixed in. And it's not really worship so much as it is fancy smoking lights, good music, everybody's excited about the music, it's a show. If you're not careful, it can be that. How many knows what I'm talking about? And I remember I really love... um, Daniel Kalinda and C-Fan, and I was with them out there when they were doing this big conference, and, 
And I remember him and some of his leaders, they, they had had something large going on there, but they said if they were warning the people, if you're not careful, you'll get caught up and it'll be like a show, and we don't want that. You see, that's the thing. You want worship to be from your heart. It's a, it's a hunger. It's a love for God. It's something from your heart that's crying out to him. But Satan offers a counterfeit there of it's really just entertainment mixed in with a little sprinkle of worship. The second thing, if you're not careful, Satan's counterfeit in the way of a social club and programs and churches. A lot of churches now, if you're not careful, you can fall into this. It's a counterfeit where the church has just become a social gathering. And it's about that. It's about the relationships. It's program-driven, but where's the power of God? See, even back in the 90s, I remember hearing about that, a, a warning from revival leaders that, that they would be, that already they were seeing that the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is what I'm going to talk about tonight, was beginning to wane in churches that are even Pentecostal churches back then. Well, that warning was not heeded, and now there's a lot of mainline church denominations that have a history that goes back to Azusa Street, which I'm going to talk about tonight, but they have long forsook tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can go to their church for months on end and never hear anybody speak in tongues. Even leaders, even leaders' kids are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. So if you're not careful, church can become a social gathering, and it becomes about programs, 12-step programs about this. You do this and this and this and this. Listen, when the power of God comes, all these other programs and things all of a sudden are not necessary because Jesus comes to deliver the captives and to heal. And things can be accomplished in five minutes under the power of God in the altar that 12 years of counseling will never accomplish. That's just a fact. And so if you're not careful, Satan gives this counterfeit. And it seems good because everybody's happy. It's a social thing, and there's nothing wrong with being social. I'm not saying that. But where's the power of God to deliver people? You see, where's the power of the Holy Spirit coming in to convict and draw people to repentance and heal the sick and deliver the captives? There's people all through this room and, and others that are not here tonight that can say by the power of God that they have physically and mentally and emotionally been healed by the Lord. They have also been delivered from things that they some have struggled with for years, but they're delivered today. And it wasn't going through a 12-step program. It was the power of God. It was the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I, I love Rod Parsley, and he said this one time. It made me laugh, but he was so serious. He was, he was preaching. He said, he said, man, if I want to learn about business principles, he said, I can go sign up for the local community college. <laughs> he said, when I come to church... I want to experience the power of God. And the next thing that is a counterfeit, if we're not careful, is sermons in some places, not everywhere, but in some places have just become motivational speeches. It's just about the here and the now, a better you, a better life now. And it's all about that. It's just motivational speeches, keep people happy. And I'm not saying this in a mean way, but I wonder sometimes if 
the motive behind that isn't just to keep the numbers and the offerings. Because if you tell it like it is, there's going to be some people get mad and leave. But yet you'll have revival because people are going to be repenting and getting right with God. So if you're not careful, just a warning today, the Bible actually warns of this. There will come a time where people just want, they gather unto themselves teachers, and so they put them there. They want them there. That just tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And I believe that we're seeing that today in some places. But yet there's still a hungry remnant out there. So motivational speeches, be careful. We need to have the word of God preached. And I love what Kenneth Hagin used to say. The Lord will confirm his word with signs. He won't confirm your opinion, and he's certainly not going to confirm just some motivational speech. But the Lord will back up his word with signs that follow. So we've got to preach the word. And finally, this is just something that, because I'm talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit tonight, I really felt the Lord put this on my heart, and I actually did a teaching on this on the internet this week. But another counterfeit I want to warn about is alcohol that seems to be invading a lot of Christian lives. When I was growing up in church, I mean, this wasn't even an issue. How many of you guys have been saved long enough to know that that wasn't even something in the church at one time? Okay. So there's something in these latter days that's gotten a little off, um, but I, hopefully this will make sense. So let me share one more thing, and then I'm going to start bringing it together. In Acts chapter 2, John the Baptist predicted when Jesus came, he said, there's coming one after me, Matthew 3.11, who will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I mean, it was Jesus is the baptizer and the Holy Ghost and with fire. Well, when that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, which was a feast that was celebrated in Israel for 1,500 years before the Holy Spirit fell, this was one of the three major feasts that people would go to Jerusalem and bring an offering, okay? At the Feast of Pentecost, this was fulfilled. And we know Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell upon those that were there and they were filled with the Spirit. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. Now, when this happened, isn't it interesting that the, those that were around the bystanders, some of them mocked and said this. They said, these are drunk with wine because they're probably staggering around and speaking in foreign tongues. And they thought they were drunk. Isn't it interesting? They thought that they were drunk with alcohol, but they weren't. And Peter had to get up and address that. And he said, what, these are not drunk as you suppose, because it's only in the morning. He said, these have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So, and, and of course, he referenced Joel chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. We, we're familiar with this. But also, let me give you a few more scriptures. So Ephesians 5.18, the apostle Paul said this to the church in Ephesus. He said, do not be drunk with wine wherein it leads to debauchery, okay? And debauchery is immorality. It leads to evil. It leads to sin. It leads, leads to depraved behavior. And those of us that have had a sinful past, how many knows that when you were drinking, you did things that you normally wouldn't be doing? Okay, just be honest. So he was saying there, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to sin and evil, he said, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So isn't it interesting, again, he's comparing 
drunkenness, but he's comparing it to the Holy Spirit moving in our lives and filling us. All right, and then also 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Again, Paul was talking now to the church in Corinth, they planted. He said this. He said, we've all been given one spirit to drink. Now, the Holy Spirit, he is a person. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Father or the Son. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, it's actually better that I go away because the one who's coming after me, he will lead you in all truth. He'll show you things to come. And can you imagine being there with Jesus when he said, it's actually better for you that I leave? Who would have believed that? We would all have been like, oh, wait a second. Then we would have thought to ourselves, but Jesus never lies, so this must be the truth, you know. But we'd be thinking, how is it a good thing that you're leaving us, Jesus? But Jesus said, don't worry, I'm sending the comforter. And he will come, and he will be in you and with you. He will teach you things. He will lead you into all truth. He'll convict of sin. So the Holy Spirit is the one who's with us. So the Father's in heaven. We know Jesus is at his right hand as our great high priest who is making intercession. But the Holy Spirit is the one in the Godhead that is in us. He is with us. In the Holy Spirit, I promise you, he is the best friend that you have. And let's be honest, the Holy Spirit has had to be very patient with us. Let's just be true, especially with Ed. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, especially with me. The Holy Spirit has had to be so patient with us and put up with so many things, but yet he's, he's continually working on us to, yes, convict of things that need to be convicted, but he refines us. He purifies us. He's the one that anoints and empowers us. So I'm going somewhere with this. Just, I'm trying to get there. So hold on. Let me stick with this. Wine in the Bible, now talking about physical, natural, the word wine, okay? It's a generic term in the Bible that's used for the vineyard. It's used for grapes that are still on the vine. It's used for what we would call grape juice today, which would be new wine. And it was also used for fermented grape juice, old wine. But it was like a generic term about the fruit of the vine across the board. Just a generic term, okay? And in that day and age, and I don't think it's altogether different today, but in that day and age, people that were drunkards were looked down on, and the culture at that time would call them barbarians, which would be a term that's derogatory. That would mean somebody that's kind of uncouth, uneducated. But still, even in our day and age, there's, there's people that are drunkards, winos, they're those that have got, and people look down on that. You see, it was that way then too. So drunkenness was not something that was favorable. And I, and I love Brother uh, John Davis. How many of you guys love Brother John? He's a spiritual father to us here in River of Life, and he comes and ministers on a regular basis. But he told me this in regards to specifically alcohol, but some other things. He said, he said, Pastor, he said, in my generation, because he grew up Pentecostal, he said, in my generation, we knew to avoid certain things, and we just avoided them. But he said, I'm seeing a generation coming up that it's like anything goes. He's right. So there's certain things, and I, I love Brother Rodney Hare Brown. He is, he's really tells it straight, and I love that. And I remember hearing him talk about some of this, and he was saying that 
there was groups of people. This is what Brother Rodney said. He's traveled the nation, seen revival. And there's a, kind of a special grace on him, the anointing on his life specifically, that there's a lot of the drunkenness of Pentecost that follows his ministry. And he said that he had seen all these revivals, and he said since alcohol started coming into places, this is what he said. I found it really interesting. He said that some of those people that had gotten into alcohol, he said now, he said, I'm having a very difficult time getting them filled with the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? See, I'm going to say one more thing and then get off this subject. But alcohol is Satan's counterfeit to the move of the Holy Spirit. Alcohol is Satan's counterfeit to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what alcohol actually does with people is, see, let me give you an example. When we pray and we fast and we get filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens? Our flesh nature is being brought down. Our, our soul area is getting really clear. Our minds are getting spiritually clear. And our inner spirit is really rising up strong. I mean, I've experienced that, especially on this last fast. I felt so just clear about things. But see, alcohol does the exact opposite. Alcohol feeds the flesh. It causes your mind to get clouded, right? And it puts the spirit man down. So it elevates the flesh. That's why the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine because it leads to debauchery. It leads to sin because people start doing things. And here's a good example in Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron, we know this, Aaron became the first high priest in Israel and he had four sons, okay? And his first two sons, they were, they were celebrating, they had set up the tabernacle, Moses anointed it, the glory came. And in this time of celebration and rejoicing, Nadab and Abihu got excited and they tried to go into the Holy of Holies. And they were trying to burn incense, and God called their incense a strange fire, which is a lot of scholars believe that they did not mix the right incense. And so they were trying to offer something that was not prescribed, and they tried to go into the Holy of Holies on a day they weren't supposed to, and they themselves weren't supposed to. It was only supposed to be the high priest. So God had to judge it. He had to set a standard because if he didn't judge that, then other people would start thinking they could get away with it, right? So God kills them. Fire came out of the Holy of Holies, fried them. And, and now all this rejoicing turns to mourning. But isn't it interesting that right after that happened, Moses said this to Aaron. He said, make sure that you and your sons do not drink strong drink and then try to minister before the Lord. I think that Moses was trying to say Nadab and Abihu had too much to drink. They got a little excited. They didn't mix the incense right. In their excitement, they tried to go into the Holy of Holies, and it cost them their life. Like I said before, people will do things that under the influence of alcohol they would normally never do. They'll cheat on their spouse. They'll look at pornography. Some people get abusive. They'll do stupid stuff. I mean, even criminal things. They'll do things that they normally would never do, but because they're under the influence, they'll do it. 
And then they'll get up the next day and regret their foolish decisions. How many times do we read in the scriptures about being sober, being alert, but being sober, you see? The Lord is trying to say to be careful with that. All right, I could go on and on about that subject, but I think you get the point. And that's why that generic term for wine across the board, that's why personally, my personal opinion is, is when Jesus turned the water to wine, it would have been considered what we today would call grape juice, in my opinion. So anyway, let me talk now about the Azusa Street Revival. So alcohol is one, and you could say drugs as well. These are kind of Satan's counterfeit to being filled, to overflowing with it, drunk in the spirit, which we need to be. But God used William Seymour and Frank Bartleman in an awesome way. So 1905, the Azusa Street Revival. I'm just going to read some things about this revival. And remember what I said about not fitting into church as usual. Remember what I said about rejection. Don't be shaken by rejection. The hunger for more of God and all of that, and it'll all come together here in a minute. So regarding the Azusa Street Revival, the two people that are known the most is William Seymour and Frank Bartleman. But let me give you just a couple quick things in history that you need to know. This isn't real long, but you need to know this. This is, this is your heritage. How many of you guys are spirit-filled, tongue-talking, Holy Ghost revival people tonight? All right. Well, this is your heritage. So there was a man by the name of Charles Parham, and he was kind of the father of modern Pentecost because in the early, early 1900s in Topeka, Kansas, Parham bought a place called Stone's Folly. There was a man by the last name of Stone, bought it, built it up, but he couldn't afford it, so it ended up being sold inexpensively. Anyway, Parham got this, and he began kind of a Bible college, and he began to really talk about the baptism in the Holy Ghost. He wanted to see another Pentecost now. Basically, the attitude was, why did this ever cease, you see? And as he, as he taught on this in Topeka, Kansas, there is Stone's Folly, and he was, people began to get hungry to experience it. And so there in Topeka, there was an outbreak of the Holy Spirit, and the first woman in modern history that we know about got baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. And so Parham, who he himself had experienced some powerful things, he had been supernaturally healed from sickness. But anyway... He actually took sick, and he left, and he went, ended up in Houston, Texas. And in Houston, of all places, he begins to teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit to a group of people. And there was a man by the name of William Seymour who was so hungry for God, he was a black man, and at this time, segregation laws were in place. So it actually was illegal at this time for black students and white students to be in the same classroom. And William Seymour was so hungry for God, and Parham loved everybody, so he would crack the door of the classroom, even though he was teaching in here, so that Seymour could hear him out there. But Seymour was so humble and so hungry, he was willing to do that. He would sit in the hallway and listen. He wanted to learn. And so he heard him talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and Seymour began to get so hungry to see Book of Acts Christianity today. So a little bit about William Seymour. He was the son of Simon and Phyllis Seymour, who were former slaves. 
He lost one of his eyes to a smallpox infection in his eye. He truly felt in his generation after seeing all the slavery, the KKK, which was very militant at that time. He saw the Jim Crow segregation laws. He, he was convinced within himself that the only way to truly find freedom in this life was through Jesus Christ. And he's right. And so Seymour ended up leaving Houston to pastor a church in California area, Los Angeles area. But when he took this church, they were excited to have him until he started preaching. He opens his Bible to Acts chapter 2 and starts talking about, let's have Book of Acts Christianity today. Let's have a new Pentecost right now. Why aren't we baptizing the Holy Spirit? Why aren't we speaking in tongues? He started preaching along those lines. Well, the people didn't want to hear it and ran him out. He could have got discouraged, but Seymour was not going to get discouraged. So he ends up at a little house in Los Angeles area on Bonnie Bray Street, this little house, and it's still there to this day, and you can go there and visit this house. Seymour was there, and there was a group of maybe around a dozen African-Americans that were there, and he was so desperately hungry to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit and see revival that he was spending up to five to seven hours a day in prayer, crying out to God. And they could have never known at Bonnie Bray Street that as they began, others began to join him in prayer, they could have never known that Christianity would forever be changed out of that little house of Bonnie Bray Street with about, around a dozen people. So you have to understand that every Pentecostal, spirit-filled movement around the world today, in Africa, in Asia, all over the world, every one of them traced their roots back to that little Bonnie Bray Street house. And it seems that just as Seymour went through some rejection and no doubt some disappointment, he ended up right where God wanted him. Now, isn't that just like the Lord? Look at the life of Joseph, who was supposed to be out there as a shepherd, you know, and just staying with his father. But Joseph ends up in, thrown into a pit, which lands him in Egypt, and then things start going good again. Then he ends up being thrown from that into prison. But if he hadn't been thrown into prison, he wouldn't have met the butler and the baker that he interpreted their dreams. You see, so it was like in the midst of great rejection and disappointment in Joseph's life, Joseph's life ended up lining him up into his very destiny in God. And you think about not only Joseph, but look at the life of Moses. Look at the life of David. So rejection seems to align you. And I look back on it now, 45 years old, I look back over some things. And there was times that I went through some rejection as well. But looking back on it, I realized that if I had fit into that particular group of that time, I would have been conformed into the image of that group. And I would not be Holy Ghost revival person now. I wouldn't be here. Sometimes God allows rejection 
to get you away from the people you need to not be around. And in a place of rejection, you begin to really cry out to God and seek God. And that's what one of the things, not the only, but that's one of the things that really drove me into prayer and to seek the Lord. And God began to move in my life through the 90s revivals, as you guys know. So rejection seems to position you for your destiny. But here's the thing. If I could get this point across tonight, and I remember one guy said, and it made me laugh, he said, don't just write this down on some flimsy little piece of paper. He said, get you a chisel and a hammer and put it in a piece of stone, okay, and then put it up somewhere, all right? This is something you need to remember. Be willing to be different. If you want revival and you want to be like everybody else, forget it. You say, well, I want revival and you want to fit into church as usual, forget it. Somebody that's really hungry and desperate for God, you've got to be willing to be different than the norm. And when you're different than the norm, there's an element of persecution in that. And you're going to have to be willing to endure the persecution. Please remember that. There will be no revival unless somebody is willing to be different than church as usual and pay a price for a move of God and be willing to be persecuted for that. There won't be a revival. You have to be willing to be misunderstood. You have to preach what you believe even if it's not received. I've preached things and had people get so angry and leave and I was just preaching the word. I've actually preached before and had people snicker at the Word of God. It wasn't me. I, was read, I remember reading the Bible one time, and somebody was snickering. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, my God, man, they're actually mocking God's Word in God's house. You know, that's just the way some people are. But you have to be willing to preach the Word even if people hate it. Did Jesus ever pull back, or did he preach it straight? John chapter 6, verse 66, remember all those people forsook him. And then he looks at his 12, will you leave too? So now let me talk about Frank Bartleman. Frank Bartleman was a powerful intercessor. Now he had heard about the Welsh revival and wrote Evan Roberts and was so encouraged because Evan Roberts actually wrote him back and gave him some advice and all that. But Frank Bartleman was so desperately hungry to see revival in L.A. He was praying, he, he was fasting, he was crying out to God, and he really felt that God wanted to pour out his spirit in Los Angeles. Bartleman was organizing prayer, and he began to pass out a little pamphlet by G. Campbell Morgan that was on the Welsh Revival, he began to pass that out, and it was like he was trying to stir up a hunger in people for more. There was a sense in L.A. at that time that revival was coming. Other ministers were talking about it. Sermons were being preached on revival. Bartleman was touched really powerfully in 1904 when he heard F.B. Meyer preaching on the revival in Wales. So even though Bartleman had not been to the Welsh Revival, it's like he was still being touched by the embers of the revival in L.A. After Bartleman, Bartleman lost his three-year-old daughter, he was very brokenhearted about her death. 
but he desired to devote himself to praying for revival. Bartleman felt that Joel 2 and Acts 2 needed to be seen today. So before the Great Azusa Street Revival, Bartleman's prayers, the prayers of others, William Seymour was, was praying at Monty Bray Street with a group of people. A small revival broke out in Lake Avenue Methodist Church in Pasadena. And also, as intercessors were crying out, went there and was powerfully touched. But in June, Bartleman went to L.A. to attend a meeting at this first Baptist church. And the people there, in an unhealthy way, were so dependent. They wouldn't even unless he was there. So Bartleman was kind of grieved by this. And because of his corrections, the people began to allow the Holy Spirit. But they had a pastor. His last name was Small, S-M-A-L-E. And he started seeing many repenting and getting right with God. So all those accumulative prayers, Seymour was praying on Bonnie Bray Street, Bartleman was praying and leading others in prayer. A lot of sermons were being preached. There was something that was stirring well. At this church, it seemed that there was a spark now of revival. Meetings began to run day and night at this Baptist church that was getting spirit-filled. This seemed to be what they were praying for. Intercessors began to come to these meetings because they were hungry and they were earnestly interceding for the move of God. But here's the thing. After four months of seeing a powerful move of God at this church, the officials of the church were tired and wanted to return to the old order of things. So they went to Pastor Smile and they told him to either stop the revival or leave and he chose to leave, and the revival died. And as revival waned, Bartleman did not lose faith, but continued to even go deeper in prayer. Let me tell you something, River of Life, as revival breaks out in the days to come, because it will, and people start coming in, and things start happening, you got to have more services and all that. Who are we to not be willing to pay the price? This church, man, they missed God. They could have had the Great Azusa Street Revival, and it would actually be called the name of this church revival that went to the ends of the earth. See, when we cry out for revival and God shows up, let me tell you something. You're not going to be the only one that's being touched by God. The people that you're praying for in your family will probably come to the revival and get right with God. And let me tell you something else that's sobering. Your church could be the answer to a lot of people's prayers. Praying grandmas out there that maybe gone home to be with the Lord, hadn't seen their prayers answered yet, that spent countless hours on their face crying out to God for their, their children to get saved, their grandchildren, that would come to that revival at your church and get right with God. But these people said, well, we're, we're tired, so we want to go back to the way things were. I wonder how many people didn't get saved because of that. How many prayers were hindered because of their disobedience? It's a sobering thought. But as revival waned, Bartleman did not lose faith nor his intercessory burden. He stated that he felt like he was at the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. Meanwhile, you know, Jesus was in such deep agony, such deep prayer, he was sweating drops of blood. And Bartleman said that he felt such a deep, 
travail upon his soul had come upon him to such a measure that he would not be able um, to withstand that intensity for long, that God had to help him because it was such a deep burden, such a deep travail. And some people began to think Bartleman was losing his mind. Few understood what he was going through. How many have ever had a deep burden hit you that you couldn't shake it? It was just a deep, deep burden. This was from God. And this apostolic intercession was not unlike Paul when he said, I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The church that was seeing revival began to get away from prayer and revival. Consequently, Bartleman ended up drifting away from them. But here's the thing, and this is the last part of this history I want you to hear. Here Bartleman is crying out for revival and deep prayer, and he's got others gathered in prayer. He's, he's spending time in fasting. Some of his family members were actually concerned for Bartleman because he lost so much weight in prayer and fasting. He was desperate. And while he's doing that, William Seymour at Bonnie Bray Street is also desperately crying out for God in deep prayer, seeking God for hours. He's also doing the same thing. And here's, here's how God moves. Bartleman ended up in a prayer meeting where whites and blacks were gathered together where Seymour was. Isn't it interesting that God knows how to bring the right people together? at a time when segregation laws were in place. Seymour, I'm going back a little bit in time, but he had just come from Texas and been rejected by that congregation. And Bartleman had been touched vicariously from the Welsh Revival. Seymour also had been touched secondhand, if you will, from the Topeka Revival. And you had these two streams kind of coming together. And it was like nitro and glycerin when they came together. And we know the rest. The rest is history. We know the Holy Spirit fell at Bonnie Bray Street. The people there were baptized in the Holy Ghost and with fire. It was such a powerful move of God there at that, at that little house that some people that were hit by the power would fall and they would kind of roll backward from the house in the lawn. And that's actually where the term is about holy rollers. And it was a negative thing back then. They were making fun of them. But they outgrew the house. People were coming hungry. And so William Seymour had to go rent the Azusa Street Mission. And he had to clean it out as a stable. They had to scoop all that out. And they had to build some pews and all of that, put a piano in there. But they began to run revival meetings night and day. There was a man by the name of Tommy Welchel that he, as a young man, I believe in the 60s, if I remember right, he was young. He was like a teenager. And he found himself among this area, assisted living, where a lot of older people lived. Okay, assisted living. The elderly were there. And he found himself there. And pretty soon, these older ladies started talking to him about that they were actually the ones that were physically at Azusa and were used by God. And so he started hearing all these stories. And a lot of these people kept in touch, and they were all there, and they were telling him the stories of revival. And as they, they told him about these stories, it, it sparked something in him. And so he's actually written a book on it. But let me just tell you briefly about Azusa Street. It was so powerful. The people that were there said about Azusa 
that during the height of the revival, that there would be like a, a thin layer across the floor many times of a cloud of the glory. And it was evident to everybody there. As a matter of fact, they said the little children would kind of go down on the ground and would kind of play hide-and-go-seek in the glory with each other. They said that as the piano, all they had was a piano. And as the guy would play the piano and begin to sing, and they would sing in the spirit. Seymour would tell them, let's all begin to sing in the spirit. And they would sing in tongues as they began to worship. They said that that glory would start coming up off the floor and would begin to go over their head and would fill the place. And people were just totally caught up in that. And they said that, that it sounded, even though it was just a piano, that it sounded more than a piano. They said it sounded heavenly, like there was other instruments. And they said that not only the people present, but it sounded like there were more people singing than were actually in the room at the time. It was like angels were singing. Azusa Street actually had the fire department called multiple times, at least twice, that I know of, they had the fire department called because people said, hey, there's a building on fire. And what happened was, was that the glory, just like over uh, the tabernacle of Moses, the pillar of fire was literally on the top of that building. And people, even the heathen people, saw it. It was physically there that even the heathen saw it and called the fire department. Think about that. And they saw all kinds of miracles, and there was a train that would come in pretty close to the area. And I remember reading about somebody said, well, I want to go to the revival. The Susan Street Revival said, how do I get there? And they were saying, when you get off the train, just turn and go that direction. And they said, well, how will I know? And they said, you'll feel it. They had so many healings and miracles in the presence of God. Tumors fell off. One lady said it was so common that people come in with all kinds of things on their skin, and it would just all just fall off on the floor. And she didn't know what to do, so she just had like a little broom. She would just sweep it up and put it in the trash. They said that there was, there was people that had creative miracles that teeth would just pop in their mouth where they didn't have teeth. All kinds of healings and miracles. The blinds, there was a man came in that was drunk, and a, a young man, probably 12, 13 years old, says, sir, what can I do if you smelt the alcohol? But he stumbled in there because he was blind. The young man, little teenager, prayed for him. His eyes popped up. He started crying, instantly sobered up, got delivered of alcohol, got baptized in the Holy Ghost, ended up being a powerful preacher. Stories like that are just common at this revival. I mean, and let me tell you this, and then we'll, I'll move on from this part about Azusa. But Azusa Street was the birth of Pentecost. At this time, there was almost non-existent for people to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. And even though the first trickles of it came in Topeka, Kansas with Parham, when it came to Azusa Street, this is where the baptism of the Holy Spirit exploded. Okay, this was, that was what this revival was known for, was Book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, now. You come... There's a baptism in the Holy Ghost. There's tongues. Well, how did this revival in 1905, 1906, 1907, this was back in the days of horse and buggy. You understand? How in the world did this revival, the Azusa Street mission wasn't even big. How did this spread to the ends of the earth? Well, the Holy Spirit had an interesting technique. 
people become, and when they got baptized in the Holy Spirit, they spent some time there. They now had a prayer language and all that. If their tongue, if they sounded a certain way, it may sound like Chinese, you know, it may sound like Asian. They would feel that God was calling them to that respective nation. So they would get prayer and they would go as a missionary to that part of the world and God would begin to break out revival there. And I'll tell you something else. John G. Lake and F.F. Bosworth and some of these mighty men of God actually came out of Azusa Street. John G. Lake, everybody knows about his ministry. He went to Africa, it's tremendous healings, but it started at Azusa. But see, wherever their tongue sounded like a certain South America, Africa, whatever, they would go there. So it was through that method that this Pentecost went to the nations. Now let me talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and close this out tonight, because we're going to pray. I'm concerned because we're living in a time, I know that there's always a remnant, okay? God always has a remnant. But we're living in a time now to where many have gotten away from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if there's ever a time that we need the baptism in the Holy Spirit, it's now. Here we are living in the latter days. The Apostle Paul said would be fierce, perilous times. Perilous times. And we're seeing them. All the prophecies were in the last days. It's like on God's prophetic clock, we're at 1159. We just don't have a lot of time. And here we are in these days. This is the time that we need to be baptized in the Holy Ghost and filled with the Spirit. I'm talking about where people think that we're drunk. Acts chapter 2, baptized in the Holy Ghost. This is a time we really do need that. So let me just give you a few things about it. It was prophesied by John the Baptist who closed out the Old Testament prophets, introduced the Messiah that he would baptize in the Holy Ghost and with fire. So tonight when we pray with people, you know, River of Life, we're not the baptizers in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is. Jesus, how many of you guys since you've been here have been baptized in the Holy Ghost? You never were before. You're baptized, wave at me. Two, three, four, five, several. I remember Fernando get baptized in the Holy Spirit. I remember tell a funny story real quick. Is that okay? When Fernando, he was very young at the time, you know, and, and I remember I was just praying for people, and I remember him getting hit by the power, and he was like, what in the world is this? You know, he's never felt the presence of God. Do you remember that? And then I was like, well, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Okay, pastor, I just, whatever God wants to do. And I prayed with him, and sure enough, baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues. Praise God. Amen. We need that. But I love people that are unchurched that come in that are just hungry for Jesus. They're right there. They haven't been taught against the things of God. Anyway, Jesus predicted that this would be the promise of the Father in Luke 24, 49, Acts 1, 4 through 8. And it was fulfilled at the Feast of Pentecost we read about in Acts chapter 2. So what is the baptism into the Holy Spirit? Well, number one, let me give you a few things. I'm closing with this, but you need to know this. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is not the new birth. There's a lot of scriptures I could give you about this, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when, you're, when you accept Christ as your Savior and you're born again, you've entered into a blood covenant, 
the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, he takes up residence in you, you're born again. So see, the Father has to draw you. He uses the Holy Spirit to do that. But then that new birth is the Holy Spirit entering you. But see, when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, Jesus said, okay, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power, and you'll be my witnesses. So it's a clothing of power, Acts 1a. And we can see the difference because in Acts chapter 8, 12 through 17, Philip goes to Samaria, and he preaches to the people there, and all kinds of miracles break out. You read about it, Acts chapter 8. The, the paralyzed were healed. The blind were healed. Demons were coming out of people with a shriek. Major revival was happening under Philip's ministry to the degree that even Simon the sorcerer, the local shaman or whatever, got saved. And so after all of that, they, were, they accepted Christ. They were water baptized. Philip did his job as the evangelist. And then he sends for Peter and John out of Jerusalem and sends a message to him say, hey, Samaria has received the gospel. Can you come? And it says when Peter and John went there that they laid hands upon the people and prayed for them and they received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. So it was two different instances. So the, the Holy Spirit, when you get saved, lives in you. When you get baptized in the Holy Ghost, he comes upon you in power. It's a clothing of power. Also, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, this is so important, is where you begin to leave the outer court of the tabernacle and go into the holy place. That first veil, you go beyond that. See, it's your introduction. Please hear me tonight. It's your introduction to the supernatural aspect of Christianity because now you're moving beyond just some kind of a salvation experience that now you're beginning to speak in supernatural languages. Now there's a dimension to your Christianity that you begin to operate in the gifts. And what does Jesus say in Mark chapter 6, 17 and 18? He said this, when, when you go out, he said that you will cast out demons in my name. Remember this, you will speak in new tongues. He talked about protection, but then he said you'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. He connected being delivered, being protected, seeing the sick healed, he connected that with speaking in new tongues. See, the baptism in the Holy Ghost is the clothing of power to drive out demons and see the sick healed. And that is not just for ministers. That is for all those who believe. It is a power to be a witness. You remember Peter? was filled with the Spirit on, in Acts chapter 2. And there was all these people there that were wondering what was going on because they saw these Galileans speaking in different languages. And it drew a crowd, and Peter preached to them about Christ. And what does it say? It says they were cut to the heart. And about 3,000 got saved that day. You know what that was? That was Peter now baptized in the Holy Ghost, preaching the word of the Lord, and it convicted people and they got saved. So you need the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It brings conviction. And not only that, but there's a flow of tongues. And I don't have time to talk about all the benefits of tongues, but let me just tell you that speaking in tongues is extremely powerful. When you're speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit is praying through you the perfect will of God. You know as well as I do, when we're praying 
In English, we're praying with our understanding. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. You get to a point where you say, I don't know what else to pray about. I've prayed about this situation, and Lord, I don't know what else to pray, but the Holy Spirit, if you yield to him and he'll pray through you, he knows exactly what to pray. And let me tell you, I have seen some major breakthroughs praying in tongues. So there's deep intercession as you speak in tongues that you pray mysteries. In other words, God gives divine revelation. Also, praying in tongues strengthens you from within. How many have ever spent some time in, in tongues and you feel afterward, you feel strengthened in your inner man? And it's interesting that a lot of people don't think about this, but when Paul in Ephesians 6 gave the weapons of our warfare, remember he talked about our armor? And he talked about a helmet of salvation and a breastplate. We all know the scripture. But did you know there's six armament? One of them's offensive, the sword. But did you know there's actually a seventh? He said, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. See, a lot of people skip that. That's part of your armor. That's part of our warfare. And I believe personally, you know, back in the days of of war in America, um, we used these Navajo Indians that would use their ancient dialect that nobody knew. And they would speak in code And we could actually speak to one another and not have to worry about our enemies knowing what was said because none of them knew Navajo and they never would, (laughs) right? And so we had them there. I believe that a lot of times the devil likes to, the enemy hears things and wants to try to resist you. But I think that when you pray in the spirit, it speeds things up because the enemy doesn't know how to resist what you're praying because he doesn't know what you're praying. So you're just moving forward in things, see? So there's so many things I could say about tongues, but we need tongues. There's a deep groaning, a deep travail that births souls. And this is the last thing I'm going to give tonight, but I got to tell this story real quick. So I remember years ago, I had been at a, a church there, and I believe probably one of the only reasons God had me at this place because, I, you know, I just helped. I was very young, 20 years old. And I helped out with the youth and things like that. I helped out with the worship. But God began to really touch my life in the 90s revival, specifically at Brownsville, 96. And, and I ended up at this church, and I, and I was so hungry. God, the Holy Spirit, was drawing me. He was drawing me into prayer. And I would go into the sanctuary by myself, Nobody was around. I would spend a lot of times in the Word and prayer. Well, there was these two elderly women, Ruby and Addie, and they would come up there to intercede. And they would pray for the services, etc. And here I was, this young guy. And, you know, that had never happened before. Nobody else was ever there. And they began to see that God was doing something. So they started spending some time investing in me. They started teaching me more how to pray and teaching me a lot of things, actually. They They took me to powerful revival meetings. They laid hands and prayed over me. And I knew that God really was using them in my life, uh, amongst other things that were going on. But I remember that after I left there, I didn't really realize how much God had probably done in my life through them, really. And I'm going to get somewhere with this in a moment. But I, I was somebody that knew that God was drawing me into prayer like being a man of prayer and being focused on prayer. Prayer had been a priority in my life. And um, they, they were 
just so powerfully used. And I remember that in 2011, my wife and I started this ministry back then, but it really wasn't a church or anything. We were just doing street evangelism and different things. But I remember in 2011 that, you know, the devil had attacked, and there was just a lot of problems. There was a major betrayal in my life and a lot of negative things, and, you know, friends turned to enemies, that sort of thing. And I remember thinking to myself, man, you know, it'd be a lot easier just to get out of the ministry at that time. And I was really contemplating a lot of different options. And I remember that as I was just sharing whatever God gave me, we, we lost so many people. There wasn't very many people even there. It was a lot, a lot of negative, a lot of hurt feelings. It was a really difficult time. And I remember just praying. You know, my heart was broken, just praying for people, just doing what I had to do, even though I didn't feel like being there. Does that make sense? And I was just trusting God. I was like, God, I, I have nothing to offer, but, you know, you don't need me. Just do whatever you're going to do. And so I just preached what God gave me. I was praying for people. And I'll never forget that night because at a really low point, and I was about to just wonder if I'm even going to stay with the ministry because, you know, there's other things you can do in life, right? And I was praying for people. All of a sudden, my daughter gets hit by the power, which wasn't altogether uncommon. That, was, that happened all the time, other people. But I remember that she really got hit and was like thrown backward, landed on the ground. And when she hit the ground, there was this deep groan and travail of intercession that came out of her mouth. And I promise you, as I'm standing here, I heard Ruby and Addie. And I realized how much had been imparted that I was carrying in me about intercession. And that birth, that released something. Here at the lowest point, when I, I felt like getting out of the ministry, that was like a spark of intercession, like an ember. And all of a sudden, as that began to be something, this deep groan, this deep travail, this deep intercession began to come out of Brianna, I noticed that it just released something in the whole church. That now, after that, other people started, it was like the Holy Spirit began to move in their life. And you know what? In that place, there began to be that deep groaning, that deep intercession where Paul said, remember he said this, groaning's too deep for words, travail. And that began to go throughout the church, and as that did, intercessors began to really be used mightily. And through that, God began a restoration and began to do great things. But it was that deep travail, that deep intercession that brought things to where they are now and where we're going. So we need it. It's a desperate thing. We've got to have it. Um, so how do we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And this is the last thing I want to read through is you can receive it directly from God. But you also can receive, receive by the laying on of hands. So there's two ways. Both are scriptural. Directly from God is that you don't have to have somebody lay hands on you. You just receive it. And I remember a quick story about some things. So my wife and I went to the Toronto Revival back in 2014. The ministry sent us, and we were there as a 20-year anniversary. And I remember as we were worshiping, a lot of people were there for the conference. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, I want you to go. And I remember, I'm like this, I'm worshiping downstairs, everybody else. And the Holy Spirit just speaks to me and says, I want you 
to go upstairs and lay down and soak in my presence. And I'm kind of like, it just caught me totally off guard, to be honest. And I looked this way because he was saying like this. And there was these stairs. And I, and I was like, well, I guess I need to go check it out. And so I go over there, and um, everybody else just kind of worshiping. I walked up there, and it was a balcony, but there were rooms. And, it, you know, there was nothing wrong with being up there. It was just nobody else was really up there. So I just kind of found a place to lay back and soak. And I said, Lord, I receive whatever you have for me. You told me to come. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came on me like a blanket. And after a while, it was very difficult to get up from the floor. And I was receiving a deep, powerful impartation, a baptism in the Holy Ghost from that revival right there directly from God. And I kept feeling I need to keep doing that through the week. But also, if there was prayer, I would go down and get prayer. But I received directly from the Lord. We have to learn how to do that. Because God moves that way where I think a lot of times the revival crowd is looking for somebody to pray for them. And there is that, and that's important. But we need to learn to receive directly from God as well. Amen. So Acts chapter 2, all those that were present, 120, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit straight from God directly. Nobody laid hands. Same thing with Cornelius. In the middle of Peter's sermon. The Holy Spirit just fell. Peter might have been thinking, how rude, man. I'm not done talking, right? But the Holy Spirit just fell on Cornelius, and, no, and Peter never laid hands on anybody. They were all just baptized in the Holy Spirit, and Peter's companions were shocked because they said, this is exactly what happened to us on the day of Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit just fell, and, um, and I remember also just here recently, I felt that when we were, I was with Brother Rodney at a meeting, I just felt that too. Just where I was, he didn't have to pray for anybody, lay hands. I just, I felt just a fresh baptism in the Holy Spirit right there in the presence of God. So there is directly from God. But then there's also the laying on of hands as we see in Acts 8, 14 through 19, Acts chapter 9, 17. Do you remember when Paul got blinded and he was led to Ananias' house? A lot of people really haven't paid attention that Ananias prayed for him, scales fell from his eyes, and Paul was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let's see. And then also 19.6. So we see that there is a laying on of hands and a baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes that way too, okay? So how do we receive the baptism into the Holy Spirit? These things... Please hear me. Number one, you must be born again. And I know you know that because God, how many knows God's not going to baptize a heathen in the Holy Ghost? Amen. Then number two, when Peter, Acts 2.38, Peter said, repent and be baptized that times of refreshing may come. So there seems to be something when we really repent of our sins. And there does seem to be something about water immersion that helps to prepare us. To receive. You remember 1 Corinthians 10? Paul said Israel was baptized into Moses through the Red Sea, but it says they were baptized in the cloud and the sea. The cloud was the Holy Spirit, you see. So there was, it was, you know, prophesying of that fullness to come. But they were baptized in the cloud and the sea. But you see there the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of water seemed to be, they kind of go together. You remember when Jesus was water baptized, what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon him. So again, there's a connection there. 
So it does seem that deep repentance of our sins and water immersion does seem to prepare us to receive the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Also, Jesus in John chapter 7, it was the Feast of Tabernacles. He was there on the last day. Hoshana Rabbah is the great last day of the feast. The, the priest would come in with buckets of water. They're pouring it out as like an offering before God. And they're praying that God would send the former and latter rains. Jesus stands up at that last day of the feast and the water libation is going on. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are thirsty. He talked about giving them living waters. And he said, he spoke of the Holy Spirit that from your belly would flow waters. And he spoke of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given, but he was talking about that. So the next thing about being baptized in the Holy Spirit is Jesus said, come to me, those who are thirsty. So you come to Jesus and you have to be thirsty for more. And then the last couple things is this. You got to ask. Remember Jesus talked about in Luke eleven thirteen. He said, how many earthly fathers, though being evil, would give good gifts to their children? If you ask for, you know, bread, he's not going to give you a stone. He's going to give you good things. But this is something he said in Luke. He said, if you ask for the Spirit, he would not give you a serpent. In other words, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, God's not going to give you a demon. So you got to ask, though. And then also receive. Here's the last couple things I want you to hear. We have to learn to receive and drink. This is where a lot of people miss it, especially I grew up Pentecostal, so I'm, I'm shooting this at my people, right? But Pentecostal people are the worst. You, you go through trying to pray for them, and they're all screaming in tongues and everything, and it's like, calm down. You're, you're, just stop praying, okay? And just receive, you know? They're not receiving. So what you need to do is when you get prayer tonight is just receive. It's so simple. People miss it. It's too simple. You see what I'm saying? It's too simple. People are thinking there's got to be more to this. There's not. Just receive, okay? So let the Lord pour into you tonight. So receive. Take a drink. And then also you've got to yield your members. You have to yield to the Holy Spirit. See, people think about the Holy Spirit, I guess, that like, you know, you squeeze a thing of toothpaste or something. <laughs> I guess people think that he's just going to squeeze those tongues out of you and make it happen. It's not. No, <laughs> he doesn't do that. So the Holy Spirit, as you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, it says, they spoke in tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Okay? So you yield. You receive and yield. As you speak in tongues, probably everybody here for the most part speaks in tongues. But this is for those out there that follow our ministry. And then finally, don't be afraid. A lot of people that haven't been around the things of God sometimes are scared. Don't be afraid. Jesus will not give you, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, he's not going to give you a demon. Jesus is going to give you the Holy Spirit. Okay? So don't be afraid. So let me read that again. You must be born again, repent of your sins, water baptism seems to prepare, be thirsty for more, come to Jesus. He's the baptizer in the Holy Ghost. Ask, receive and drink, and yield 
to the Holy Spirit. Yield to him. And as you start speaking in tongues, your tongue may start out as like just something little, like da, 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 just like one syllable. You know, that's okay because just keep doing that because how many knows when you're a babe, you, you know, we look at little Emberly, and she has not got some words down yet, okay? She's just little. As you mature in it, your tongues will mature and develop and deepen. And you may move in and out of different languages. So you have to mature in it. So even though it starts out as one syllable, use what you have. And God will keep developing your prayer language. And don't be afraid. Receive. So this is the scripture for tonight. Ephesians 5.18. Don't receive a counterfeit. Let's go after the real. How many knows we don't need no alcohol? We don't need no drugs. We don't need a bunch of garbage. What we need is to be filled and drunk with the Holy Ghost, okay? The new wine of heaven, amen? So Ephesians 5, 18, do not be drunk with wine, which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So how many want to be filled fresh tonight? Let me say this too. This is just, it's not in my notes, but Catherine Coleman used to say before a real powerful crusade, she said the Holy, she would be baptized in the Holy Ghost fresh before that. You know, I know that a lot of people probably believe it's like some once-in-a-lifetime thing. But I've had times, many, many, many times, where I felt like God just baptized me fresh in the Holy Ghost and fire. There's nowhere in the Bible that says this is some once-in-a-lifetime thing. There's always more. How many knows there's a fresh anointing? There's a fresh infilling? There's a fresh baptism? that God just wants to just baptize us in fire tonight fresh in him, okay? So, Lord, we just thank you for your word tonight. And as we pray for people that are hungry for more, Lord, I thank you for a fresh anointing. I thank you for a fresh baptism in the Holy Ghost and with fire. And, Lord, a powerful impartation for the days to come. We need it, and we need to be ready for these end-time scenarios that are playing out, end-time prophecy. You guys have gone through the book of Revelation with me and all the prophecies we talked about in these latter days. We need this. So, Lord, I thank you for clothing us with power tonight fresh. And, Lord, taking us deeper in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's go ahead tonight, and we're going to need to move the chairs. And my wife and I are going to pray with people. So I'm going to get Stephen and Ben to help me tonight.